Good afternoon, and welcome to Urolithiasis, Metabolic Evaluation and Medical Management, presented by the AUA. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we can continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. It is now my pleasure to introduce our course director, Dr. Michael Lipkin. Dr. Lipkin is current currently an associate professor of urologic surgery at Duke University. He completed his general surgery and urology training at New York University Medical Center in 2009 and went on to complete a two-year fellowship in endourology and minimally invasive surgery at Duke University in 2011. He's currently the vice chair of clinical operations for the Department of Surgery and the associate chief medical officer overseeing clinical operations for the physician practice at Duke University. It is now my pleasure to turn turn the program over to Dr. Lipkin. Thank you uh, for the introduction um, and good afternoon and welcome to all the participants. We greatly appreciate you all taking some time on a Sunday afternoon to join us for this course. Um, um, thank you. Um, please, uh, these are the three learning objectives for this course. Uh, we hope that you'll be able to explain 24-hour urine collections uh, and identify underlying metabolic abnormalities, uh, apply appropriate dietary management based off the interpretation of 24-hour urines and also appropriate medical or pharmaceutical management. Uh, I'd like to now introduce the faculty um, and my, uh, who happen to also be my very good friends and uh, who've put a lot of hard work into uh, making this course. Uh, first, I'll introduce Sarah Best, who's an Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, she completed a minimally invasive urology fellowship uh, at the University of, uh, University of Texas Southwestern and serves as co-director of the Endourology Fellowship Program in Wisconsin. She's also the director of the Simulation Education. Uh, our second faculty member is uh, Dr. Jody Antonelli who's an associate professor in the Department of Urology at UT Southwestern. She specializes in the medical and surgical management of kidney stone disease. Dr. Antonelli earned her medical degree from Jefferson Medical College, uh, and she completed a general surgery internship and a urology residency at Duke University Medical Center, and then went on to complete her fellowship in endourology at UT Southwestern. And last, but certainly least, Dr. Brian Eisner, who happens to be a endourologist and co-director of the Kidney Stone Program at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. His practice focuses on surgical treatment of kidney stones and other endourologic conditions, as well as medical evaluation and treatment of patients with urolithiasis. And with that, um, we will have uh, Sarah who will start us off. Thanks very much, Mike. Uh, and thank you everybody who's attending uh, this course this afternoon. I would love to give a shout out to the AUA for making this happen. Uh, I think none of us can wait until we're all live and back together and able to do uh, the AUA together in person. But I think it's great that we're really using uh, technology to our advantage to really uh, increase access uh, and ease with which we can do these sorts of act educational activities. So my talk, um, 
having a hard time with the going back. There we go. So my uh, talk, which is the first one today, uh, is about using thiazides to treat stone disease. I have no disclosures. Um, and as mentioned, this is supposed to be a very um, hands-on kind of uh, the, the information you need to really manage patients kind of course. Um, so thiazide medications can be used to treat patients, as we'll talk about, with hypercalciuria or a history of recurrent calcium stones. So my goal in the next uh, few minutes is to help you identify which patients might be good candidates for this medication type and how to use this for your patients. So the uh, objectives, as I mentioned, uh, identify candidates for thiazide therapy, uh, the side effects of these drugs and how to monitor for them, and then a little bit of information on the data for what you and your patients can expect uh, if thiazides are used uh, for stone disease. So anytime we talk about uh, kidney stones uh, and medical uh, management, we of course have to talk about hypercalciuria. And why is that? Uh, the main reason is that it's one of the most common risk factors for stone formation. So it's very common affecting about 40 to 75% of stone formers. And we also know from other studies that the number of Randall's plaques, which are thought to be uh, associated uh, with the precursors of stone formation, these, the number of these has actually been linked to urinary calcium levels. And finally, other studies have shown that the medical treatment of stone disease often fails if the hypercalciuria is not effectively addressed. So there are actually three different mechanisms by which patients can have hypercalciuria. And historically, we focused on this more, and there were tests that you could do to try to differentiate between absorptive and renal leak. Uh, but most of that has gone to the wayside uh, for reasons we'll talk about shortly. Um, but the, so that you have the background, absorptive, which is the most common type of hypercalciuria, is where the gut is actually overly efficient at absorbing calcium from the foods and drinks that we consume from the intestine. Renal leak, just like it sounds like, is where the nephron is not doing what it's normally supposed to do, which is to reabsorb like 98% of the calcium that's filtered through the nephron and put that back into the bloodstream. With uh, patients with renal leak hypercalciuria, that doesn't happen. So they are constantly wasting calcium uh, in their urine, resulting in hypercalciuria. And then finally, the one we do need to be able to identify as urologists is patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. These are folks who have typically one gland, uh, parathyroid gland that's overproducing uh, the hormone uh, parathyroid hormone. So all of these uh, mechanisms can cause hypercalciuria, but really we only need to identify those with primary hyperparathyroidism because they are treated differently. Uh, so the treatment for them is surgery to remove that overproducing gland. And so to find these people, you're gonna check serum labs, a serum PTH level and a serum calcium. And generally these should both be elevated and allow you to make that diagnosis and refer to somebody who can address an endocrine surgeon who can address that problem. The other uh, patients, however, uh, you do not need to separate and identify their specific mechanism. You can treat them both effectively with thiazides. 
So another topic that we just can't resist addressing when talking about hypercalciuria is the role of dietary sodium uh, in hypercalciuria. So this is an example uh, of a patient with a 24 urine collection. Uh, looks like the slide circles didn't line up, but anyways, this patient has a modestly elevated uh, urine calcium of 293. And so what I teach my residents is that if that happens, you should immediately jump your eyes down the line on this lab test, <coughs> excuse me, and look to see if the urine sodium is also high, which it is in this case, it's 304. And the reason for that is that urine uh, sodium actually drags calcium out with it in the urine. So sodium in the urine exclusively comes from the foods that we take in our foods and drinks. And when that happens, the excess that you don't need in your body for functioning is excreted uh, in the urine and it drags calcium with it. And there's actually a mathematical relationship between these processes that you can use to help figure out how much of the hypercalciuria may be caused by the urine sodium level. It's actually a two to one relationship. So to better describe this, um, here's that example again. So this is our patient uh, who has a uh, mildly elevated urine calcium of 293 milligrams per day, normals less than 250. And you jumped your eyes over and you see, haha, they do have a high urine sodium, meaning they're eating uh, more sodium in their diet, more salt than we would recommend. If you tell this patient, uh, hey, this isn't good for your urine calcium level and kidney stone formation, you got to make this change, and they are successful in decreasing their dietary sodium, let's say even modestly successful, 204 is still high, actually, but let's say they decrease this, so that's a 100 milliequivalent reduction. The mathematical relationship says that the urine calcium is actually going to drop by 50 points or 50 milligrams per day, which in this patient with mild hypercalciuria is enough to normalize it to get it below 250. Uh, so it's important. There are some patients out there certainly who can normalize their urine calcium levels with diet alone. But um, even if that is not solely to blame, say somebody has a urine uh, sodium of 300, but their calcium is like 450 or something like that, you're not going to be able to fix all of that with uh, the sodium alone. It still matters and they still have to uh, work on their dietary sodium intake, even if they're going to take a thiazide. And that can be tricky because if you have patients like I do, who would love to just take a pill rather than make an actual lifestyle or dietary change, um, it can be tricky to get them to do both. But unfortunately, sodium, uh, dietary sodium and excess urinary sodium blocks that hypocalciuric effect of the thiazides. So they can actually overwhelm the drug, be taking it as they're supposed to, uh, but it might not work if they're still eating a high sodium diet. So they unfortunately got to do both. Take home message here is to make sure uh, if you identify a patient with hypercalciuria that you check uh, and manage the urine sodium level. So now moving on to the meat of the uh, um, talk, talking about thiazides. Um, according to the medical stone management guidelines, these are indeed the mainstay of treatment uh, for hypercalciuria. And as I alluded to before, can be used effectively in patients uh, both with absorptive and renal leak hypercalciuria. 
Um, while they are effective in both types of hypercalceria, the mechanism or the way that they're working actually differs. So for absorptive hypercalceria, the gut one where it's overly efficient at absorbing calcium from the foods we eat, um, it, it doesn't fix the actual problem. Taking a thiazide doesn't fix the actual problem at that gut being overly efficient, but it compensates for it. Um, so the effect is that it improves the nephrons picking back up that calcium that has managed to be filtered uh, and is in the filtered load. And then it brings it back into the bloodstream where it can be deposited in the bones uh, and not be in the urine. So this is highly effective, uh, but it does mean that eventually in some patients, we see what we call an attenuation of the hypocalciuric effect of the thiazide medication, meaning that say you have a patient who had you know, initially a high urine calcium, you put them on this drug, it's been a miracle, they stop making stones, their urine calciums on your follow-up 24-hour urines have been beautiful, you all are very happy, and then a few years later after starting, they come back to clinic, they've done another 24-hour urine and imaging, and now they've got stones again, and their urine calcium is back high, and they swear to you up and down, they're still taking the medication. It may well be that they sure are, uh, but that the effect of that medication has worn off uh, because the bone sink, as we call it, is effectively full. Um, so the way to address that is we give patients a drug holiday where they stop taking the thiazide for, say, six months or so. Um, they will have hypercalciuria during that time. So you want to really have them be diligent about other risk factors for stone formation. Um, but then when you put them back on the medication after that time, usually it will become effective again. For renal leak hypercalciuria, thiazides are actually like a perfect treatment because they fix the actual problem. So thiazides augment the calcium reabsorption in the distal tubule, which corrects that leaking of calcium into the urine. And the reason that this is particularly important for these patients is that these patients' bones are essentially being broken down, uh, patients with renal leak hypercalciuria. Uh, the calcium level in the blood is so tightly made Maintained. If you're constantly wasting calcium in your urine, your body is going to sacrifice your bones in order to maintain a normal serum calcium. Uh, and the way that you can tell that that's going on is that these patients have a secondary hyperparathyroidism. Uh, which means that the bones are breaking down. That's the effect of that hormone. Um, so if you put patients on thiazides and correct this renal leak, you're actually not only going to help prevent stones, but you're going to help protect their bone health uh, over time as well. So you get to be a hero, which is great. Uh, mentioned that. So how do you actually use these medications? And so this is an important time to point out that none of these drugs are approved by the FDA or labeled to be used for stone formers, um, but their use is condoned by the AUA guideline panel for uh, using this. And certainly they are the mainstay. It's just that no drug company is uh, going to do the expensive work uh, to put this before the FDA. 
but there are several different medications that can be used. And we've talked about uh, the group of the other faculty and I have talked about this before. There's a wide variation amongst us, largely based on where we trained about which of these drugs we use and are most comfortable with, but they can all be effective uh, and great. So the cheapest and longest around is hydrochlorothiazide itself, which is a twice a day medication. Uh, and then there is uh, indapamide and chlorthalidone, which are uh, both also have that same effect, but they are once a day medications. Um, a thing to know we're going to talk about shortly is that typically patients on these medications may need supplementation with potassium citrate as well. But if you have a patient who does not otherwise uh, need an alkalinizing agent or a citrate supplement, and they don't wanna take extra pills, a really good solution can be using a combination pill that exists, uh, amylaride, which is a potassium sparing diuretic, plus the hydrochlorothiazide. Um, this can actually be used uh, either once or twice a diet, depending on uh, what dose you prescribe, but it can be a really effective uh, medication and easy for patients to take. Like all medications, thiazides can have some side effects potentially. Uh, big ones that we think about, of course, are hypokalemia, low blood potassium levels. Um, so it's important to check for this, or look, check labs about seven to 10 days after you start the medication and counsel patients about that. But there are a variety of other pertinent side effects that patients can have, including hypocitraturia. So you might trade one risk factor, uh, high urine calcium, for another by using these medications, such as a low urine citrate. So that's why these two together can both be effectively addressed by prescribing patients potassium citrate along with the uh, thiazide medication. Also important to know though, is that especially diabetics can suffer from hyperglycemia on these medications uh, and also hyperuricosuria, another risk factor for stone formation uh, and same deal, low magnesium. While I don't have a ton of patients who really report to me that they've had hypotension or dizziness, that certainly is a possibility. Um, usually it isn't a big deal at these doses, but I've certainly had a couple of patients over the years uh, report that. So again, as I mentioned, you can address both of those by simultaneously prescribing potassium citrate. So in order to monitor these patients effectively, the guidelines actually give us some recommendations. Uh, you should check a basic metabolic panel that's gonna give you information about the electrolytes, including the potassium, uh, as well as the glucose, uh, looking for hyperglycemia, about seven to 10 days after starting the medication, and then typically uh, recheck it yearly when you see the patient back. And uh, for a variety of reasons, you typically want to recheck a 24-hour urine uh, about four to six months after you make any changes. Uh, so first of all, you, if a patient's going to bother taking a medication, um, they want to make sure that they're on the correct dose. So if they need a higher dose, it'd be a bummer to wait a year to find that out. Um, but also it really helps cement um, for patients that it's working, they'll see an improvement in a number. It's an objective thing um, to be able to check that. So the first one you want to recheck in four to six months, really anytime you make a change in therapy. And then the guideline reminds us to also, uh, we should be rechecking 24-hour urines yearly. So last part of this talk is talking about how well do these medications actually work? 
Um, so as I mentioned, classically, these drugs are used for hypercalciuria, patients who have a proven high urine calcium, and there's really good data for this, but there's also good data uh, that thiazides work for patients who haven't had a urine test proving hypercalciuria as long as they're calcium stone formers. So let's review a little bit of this. This, first of all, is the uh, classic study, uh, one of the few randomized control trials that we have in stone disease or in urology in general. General. Um, but this study, uh, Borgi and colleagues randomized patients with hypercalciuria to be on one of three treatment arms uh, for three years. Uh, three, for three years. Um, so all of these patients, again, had proven hypercalciuria and recurrent uh, calcium stone formation. So one group got diet and fluid recommendations only. The second group got those plus a thiazide, indapamide, and the third group was indapamide plus allopurinol. And what they found is in that both groups who got the indapamide, the urine calcium levels dropped almost 50%. But even more importantly, uh, the average stone rate of formation per year went from a super painful for patients, almost uh, greater than one per year, to almost zero. So I use this. Um, to remind patients that this is a really powerful drug that can really change their lives if they take it uh, routinely. But as promised, these uh, drugs don't just work in patients with proven hypercalciuria. So there may be a patient who just you've called 14 times to try to remind them to do the 24-hour urine, or you don't have it available wherever you live, uh, and they don't do it, or you just don't feel comfortable uh, interpreting a 24-hour urine. You can still use these medications uh, in a calcium stone former, which is, again, the majority of our stone formers, and you will help them the majority of the time. And that's shown in this nice meta-analysis where they looked at the studies uh, using thiazides and the ones with stars next to them actually did not require hypercalciuria for patients to be enrolled. And they still had a significant reduction in their stone formation. So even if you don't uh, have a proven hypercalciuria, these drugs can be really effective. So in summary, uh, the candidates for thiazide therapy in our stone practices are patients with hypercalciuria and also patients who are recurrent calcium stone formers who don't have hypercalciuria. So that's another good point. Even if you have a 24-hour urine, it doesn't show hypercalciuria or you have a couple of 24-hour urines that don't show it, but this patient just keeps making stones. Certainly you can use this medication and it will probably reduce their stone formation rate. Uh, in addition, we uh, need to monitor serum and urine chemistries to look for and manage side effects of the drugs. And then finally, stone formers who are treated with thiazides can expect a significant reduction in stone formation. So thank you again for your attention. And I myself am very much looking forward to hearing my colleagues uh, speak about uh, their areas of expertise. I always learn something. Uh, next up, we have Dr. Jody Antonelli, uh, who is coming to us from UT Southwestern in Dallas. Thank you. Sarah, thank you for a great talk as always. Um, I am going to... Uh, move on and kind of um, talk a little bit about indications for a 24-hour urine. 
and um, and kind of how to specifically go through that 24-hour urine. So uh, we'll start out by talking about what patients require a metabolic evaluation, and then um, what are the components of that evaluation. And then once you actually get that 24-hour urine report, you know how should you approach uh, the values that you get? So first, who should be evaluated? Um, so there's data from six large retrospective studies to show that the natural cumulative recurrence rate uh, without specific therapy for kidney stones is 14% at one year, 35% at five years, and 52% at 10 years. And similar to the retrospective data, there was a prospective study done that looked at untreated first-time stone formers and followed them for eight years. And they found a similar recurrence rate of about 53%. So while the recurrence rate is you know, rather high, even in first-time stone formers, there is also data to suggest that perhaps first-time stone formers don't require an aggressive workup. Uh, Hoskins and colleagues coined the term the stone clinic effect, and they basically took first-time stone formers, gave them generic recommendations on high fluid intake and avoidance of you know, specific dietary things, and they actually found um, metabolic inactivity in 60% of those patients that were followed for more than five years. Now, uh, conversely, Dr. Pack and his group at UT Southwestern uh, looked at 34 patients who were first-time stone formers and performed 24-hour urines. They actually found that 80% of those patients had metabolic abnormalities. And similar to the patients who were recurrent stone formers, not only were they, these abnormalities as common, but they were actually as severe. And so an initial stone may actually be the harbinger uh, you know, of, a, of a more severe systemic disorder. And that first stone event you know, may represent an early opportunity to, to make that diagnosis and, and start treatment for a patient. So throughout the remainder of the talk, I'm going to basically review the AUA guidelines um, on you know, how to approach um, a stone patient for metabolic evaluation. So the first recommendation uh, essentially is to risk assess the patient. And so you determine whether they're low risk or high risk. Low risk patients are first time stone formers without a family history of stones and without any of the medical comorbidities listed on this slide. Um, High-risk patients are patients who are recurrent stone formers, and by recurrent stone formers, that's a patient who's presenting multiple times, or a, a patient presenting for the first time, but having more than one stone at that time. Um, children and adolescents, uh, patients with solitary kidneys, and then first-time stone formers with either a positive family history or uh, one of these medical comorbidities listed. So the low-risk patients undergo a screening evaluation, and the high-risk patients undergo a metabolic evaluation. So this slide basically um, you know, outlines what is included in the screening evaluation for low-risk patients. Um, the first step is history, and, and history for stone patients is actually incredibly important. So you know, spending some time asking about a family history of stones, kind of delving a little bit into the patient's dietary history, and then again, um, asking or, or looking at their medical history um, is, is very important. Most patients who are referred to you with a stone will probably have had a recent uh, basic metabolic panel, um, but you want to look at that. Most of those panels include calcium. The guidelines recommend a serum uric acid upfront. Uh, the guidelines do not recommend an intact PTH upfront. The only patients that you should be getting um, a PTH level on are those patients who you suspect have primary hyperparathyroidism. So that would be a patient with either frankly elevated serum calcium 
or high normal serum calcium. Um, and then for the screening evaluation, a urinalysis is sufficient um, looking at pH, low pH, maybe, uh, you know, tip your, your um, eye to think about uric acid stones, high pH, potentially think about infection stones. Um, sometimes urinalyses will include, uh, you know, whether crystals are present in the urine. And then if you have any urine cultures uh, available, looking specifically for urea splitting organisms, which again would, would make you think more along the lines of an infection stone. So the medical comorbidities that are, um, you know, a concern that can increase your risk for kidney stones are listed here. Uh, GI diseases like bowel resections, colitis, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, celiac disease, Roux-en-Y gastric bypasses, uh, patients with gout, bone disease, uh, metabolic syndrome, including obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes, recurrent UTIs. And then some, uh, you know, rarely are patients going to come to you as a first time stone former, but with a diagnosis of RTA, primary hyperparathyroidism, uh, or sarcoidosis. Um, it's important to look at patients' medications as well. Um, medications that can increase stone risk, uh, specifically calcium supplementation, vitamin D to a lesser extent. Um, I think now with the COVID pandemic, um, I've seen a lot more patients taking very high dose vitamin C with the hopes of improving immune uh, function. And, and vitamin C is actually metabolized to oxalate, which could be an issue. Um, acetazolamide, topiramate or topamax, which is probably the most common one there that's prescribed, and zanisamide. All of those are carbonic anhydrase inhibitors or carbonic anhydrase-like inhibitors. They basically make the patient's 24-hour urine look like uh, an RTA, a distal RTA patient, and these patients have, um, have calcium phosphate stones. Uh, any medication that may increase uric acid in the urine, triumpterine can actually precipitate out into the urine and be a nidus for calcium stone formation. Um, Lasix increases the excretion of calcium and then uh, protease inhibitors. So um, for the screening evaluation, if you have a stone analysis available, that could be helpful. Um, and then a, a plain radiography or x-ray. So stone analysis, unfortunately, is really, you know, in isolation, I think the most helpful when it's, it's a more rare type. So, you know, 80, 85% of the time it comes back as calcium oxalate. And there's a lot of things that can cause that type of stone. Um, but if you, if you do have a stone analysis with one of these less common types, it can actually help lead you toward the potential uh, metabolic process. So obviously, if it's a cysteine stone, you think of cystinuria. Um, a uric acid stone, you should be looking at whether this patient you know, is obese or potentially has type 2 diabetes. Um, if the stone comes back as either struvate, magnesium ammonium phosphate, or calcium apatite, think about recurrent UTIs as a cause. And if a patient has predominance of hydroxyapatite um, in their stone formation, it should really raise a red flag. This is probably not a person who's just, you know, doesn't drink enough fluid, um, but they likely are, are more likely anyway to have a metabolic disorder, um, such as renal tubular acidosis, primary hyperparathyroidism, or again, potentially beyond the um, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors that I, I listed on that previous slide. Um, if you have an x-ray available, it can help. Um, if the stone is radiolucent, for sure you want to be thinking uric acid. Um, if the stone is less dense on plain radiography, think struvite or cysteine, and then more dense stones, calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate. So um, for patients who go through the entire screening evaluation, this, these are the low risk patients and you don't see anything concerning, those patients can basically receive conservative diet, diet recommendations. So um, recommending drinking 100 ounces or three liters of fluid a day, trying to minimize sodium, animal protein and oxalate in their diet 
And you really almost never want to tell a patient to limit dietary calcium and certainly don't want to limit it, um, you know, below the recommended daily allowance, which is essentially a thousand milligrams for everyone except postmenopausal women and older men should be 1200 milligrams. So the metabolic evaluation for high-risk patients is going to include everything that the screening evaluation included, but also include a 24-hour urine. And there's really no consensus on whether initially you should do one versus two collections. Um, you know, the idea, I think for many people, one collection is just easier to expect a patient to do up front. Um, however, if you find an abnormality on that one collection, particularly something that you may want to prescribe medication, you know, it's often hard to do that and commit somebody to a, a medication for potentially, you know, forever or the foreseeable future without a second confirmatory collection. So when you do actually receive the 24-hour urine, kind of, you know, this is how I go through those values that you get. And I think, you know, gives you a little bit of a structure to kind of digest it and, and work through it. Um, so the first thing you want to do is figure out, is the collection adequate? If it's not adequate, you just want to stop there and have the patient repeat it. So this is a weight-based, gender-based determination. For women, it should be 18 to 20 milligrams per kilogram per day of urine creatinine. And for men, 20 to 22. So first place your eyes should go is the urine creatinine. And if it's very far out of the range, you know, you worry either about an under collection or, or an over collection and you have the patient redo it. Next thing I look at if the, if the collection looks adequate is, is the patient drinking enough fluid and that's going to be the urine volume. So you depending on the source, um, you, know, you, you want a patient to produce about two to two and a half liters of urine per day. Um, next place I look is the pH. So is the urine acidic or basic? If the pH is low, you worry about uric acid stones potentially. If the pH is high and by high, you know, over six and a half, close to seven, you should be thinking about maybe calcium phosphate stones, patients with recurrent UTIs, and again, di distal RTA as a possibility. Next place I look is pH and citrate are somewhat related to one another is the citrate level. Um, so citrate should be over 500. Um, if it's not, they're considered hypocitraturic and um, you know things that basically are states of metabolic acidosis can lead to hypocitraturia. So chronic diarrhea, you know, patients with some of those GI disorders, um, distal RTA, much of the time it's idiopathic. Then the next place you want to look is urine calcium. Sarah did a great job of reviewing this, so I won't go into too much detail. But as Sarah, you know, highlighted, your job as a urologist is basically to figure out, do they have primary hyperparathyroidism? If they don't, the absorptive, the renal leak, we treat it all the same now. Um, so if their urine calcium is elevated, you want to look at urine sodium, like Sarah also talked about. Sometimes, you know, that can be your first way to correct urine calcium, especially if that calcium level is not super high. Um, the next place you want to look is the BMP and see, you know, if their serum calcium is frankly elevated, check a PTH. If it's high normal, um, you also, you know, would want to check a PTH in those situations. Uh, next place I look is urine oxalate. Um, and basically if the oxalate is over 40, that's considered elevated. Um, you know, this, you want to again, be asking about diet, uh, GI disorders, such as, you know, colitis, Crohn's disease, bowel resections, gastric bypass. Um, and then sometimes it's just from dietary excess of foods, high in oxalate, um, and idiopathic primary hyperoxaluria is a fairly, um, you know, rare disorder that I, I think we don't, um, we, we don't, just don't diagnose that often, but, you know, for oxalate, the other components of the history are very important to kind of tease out the cause. 
And then looking at urine uric acid. So um, your uric acid should be below 600. Um, it could be due to potentially having um, uh, metabolic syndrome, which drives urine pH down um, and uh, could be an issue. Um, also medical history, things that would increase uric acid production in the urine um, and then diet history, basically uh, meat or uh, you know, animal protein excess intake. So when I think about stones, I think about you know, those that are calcium-based versus uric acid so, you know, starting on the left-hand side of the screen here, calcium-based stones could be due to hypercalciuria. Um, and again, you know, your job is to diagnose the person with primary hyperparathyroidism. So looking at that serum calcium and, and checking a PTH if it's elevated. Um, also could be due to hyperoxaluria for the, the various uh, reasons that I described previously, or it could be due to potentially not having enough of the substance that inhibits calcium stones, which is citrate. And again, any kind of acidotic states can really lead to low citrate in the urine. And then uric acid-based stones, um, you know, having an excess amount of uric acid in the urine is an issue, but the biggest issue is low urine pH. And, um, and so basically, you know, again, metabolic syndrome can lower urine pH, um, and promote uric acid stone formation. So follow-up is rather vague in the, 20, in the uh, AUA guidelines. Basically, you know, they, they do recommend follow-up. Success is based on changes in urine parameters, um, but um, they're kind of a little bit vague about how often it should be done. They say at least annually or with greater frequency. I think what Sarah described in her talk, uh, you know, certainly if you're prescribing thiazides, you want to be checking much more uh, often than annually, at least initially. Um, so a single 24-hour urine, I think within six months, if you're certainly if you're prescribing medication, and then periodic testing, again, like Sarah mentioned, uh, to look at adverse event, uh, effects of, uh, again, if you're prescribing thiazides or potassium citrate. Um, you want to do a repeat ana stone analysis if it's, if it's possible, um, or again, when the patient's not responding to treatment. Uh, if a patient has struvite stones, you want to do everything you can to decrease their chance of recurrent urinary tract infections, um, which is often sometimes very difficult. And then um, the guidelines just recommend periodic follow-up, uh, periodic imaging follow-up. They don't really you know, specifically state what type of imaging needs to be done or how often, but they do recommend you know, continuing to follow your, your patients um, to check for stone recurrence. So in, in conclusion, um, stone form formers should undergo a simple screening evaluation, even first time stone formers, as that, that single you know, initial stone may be the harbinger of a more um, serious systemic disorder. If the patient is a first time low risk stone former, it's just a screening evaluation. And if they pass that, then it's conservative dietary measures. Uh, for a high risk stone former, they need the full metabolic evaluation. Um, that's basically the screening evaluation plus a 24-hour urine. And those patients usually can then get directed dietary therapy and sometimes pharmacotherapy. Thank you. Look forward to, to your questions. And I think next I'm going to um, welcome our fearless leader, Dr. Lipkin back. Thank you, Jody. Uh, great talks uh, from both uh, you and Sarah. Um, and so uh, I also just want to encourage um, all of our participants, uh, please uh, add questions. We, we've had some really great questions, um, some of which we've answered directly and some of which we'll have some time at the end. Uh, but really, please uh, put any questions you have about 24-hour uh, urns, um, metabolic stone management, even if we don't directly address it in our talks, we're happy to discuss. Again, that's one of the more enjoyable parts of the course for us as well. Um, so I'm going to talk about when to give potassium citrate. 
Um, so I'm going to briefly, uh, as an agenda, I'm going to talk about some of the dosing and formulations, because there are many uh, uh, different formulations of potassium citrate, um, some side effects and monitoring uh, indications as to when we should be prescribing it, and then some alternatives, uh, pharmaceutical alternatives that are available, as well as dietary. So in general, potassium citrate uh, comes in tablet form and comes in two strengths that we typically prescribe. There's a 10 milli equivalent tablet, and it's important to note that this is 1,080 milligrams, and this will matter uh, in a moment. There's also a 15 milli equivalent tablet, um, which is newer. Um, there are also uh, crystals that come in a, uh, come in a packet uh, that provides about 30 milli equivalents of potassium citrate in each pack. Uh, this is often a good alternative for patients who either can't or have difficulty swallowing these tablets. Um, or in some patients who have issues with uh, malabsorption. Typically, uh, starting dose uh, in my practice, I'll frequently start patients on 20 milliequivalents twice daily with meals. I suggest patients take this at mealtime uh, simply because the most common side effect, which we'll touch upon, is upset stomach. And having some food in the stomach when they take these tablets uh, can often uh, ease that. Um, Insurance coverage uh, is highly variable for these medications. Um, they are uh, both now uh, the 10 milliequivalent tablets and the 15 milliequivalent tablets, uh, both are generic. Um, however, they are not always covered by insurance um, uh, and sometimes can be costly for our patients. Uh, if their 15 milliequivalent tablet is covered, I'll often start patients on 15 milliequivalents twice daily. Uh, it's also less tablets for the patient's take. So patients often like this. And if I'm going to prescribe uh, the um, crystals, I'll usually prescribe one packet twice a day. Now, there are some over-the-counter alternatives. Uh, patients will often ask um, about these uh, for a few reasons. One, uh, these tablets are often much smaller physically than potassium citrate tablets, which are quite large. Um, and also on first blush, they seem to be much less expensive. For instance, um, they can range anywhere from, uh, you know, $2.50 for 120 tabs um, to uh, $12.60 for 90 tablets. The issue here is that these tablets in general are very low dose, and this is where it really uh, is important to recognize the difference between milliequivalents and milligrams. Uh, most of these supplements are between 100 and 200 milligrams, and so to get a true equivalent dose to two 10 milliequivalent tablets twice a day, patients would have to take 10 to 20 tablets twice a day. Uh, not only can this become quite expensive, but I uh, certainly don't have many patients in my practice who are interested in taking 20 tablets um, of anything twice a day. Um, so it's important to point out to patients that these doses are extremely small. Um, more recently, there are a number of um, uh, uh, sort of water flavors uh, uh, and potassium citrate supplements. Uh, these are um, uh, two examples that you can now find online. These have substantially higher doses than the tablets that are offered over the counter. So the dosing can be either one packet twice a day or one packet daily. Um, and you can see here the costs. Um, they can be um, 
relatively comparable uh, depending on patient's insurance plans to a you know, month's supply of potassium citrate. Um, the other advantage of these is it encourages our patients to drink fluids, which is really the foundation of stone prevention. So in addition to supplementing the citrate, uh, there's an added benefit of increasing fluid intake. Um, and oftentimes these are, um, can be better tolerated than the tablets. So moving on to some of the side effects of potassium citrate. So by far and away, the most common side effect is upset stomach. Um, I also would mention, and I don't put it here explicitly, uh, many patients, though not a side effect, uh, will complain about the large tablet. Um, it is quite big, if anybody's ever seen these tablets. I do uh, encourage you, if you prescribe potassium citrate, um, and patients are not complaining about the size of their tablets to just ensure that they are in fact getting potassium citrate. It's not uncommon in my practice that a uh, pharmacy will change the prescription to potassium chloride, um, thinking that the patient is on this for potassium supplementation. Often potassium chloride is cheaper um, and the tablets are much smaller. And I've had a handful of patients through the years who've actually unbeknownst to me and unbeknownst to them, we're on an incorrect medication, some of whom have been informed stone. So it's really important to confirm uh, they're on the correct dose. And I, I tell them that this is a large tablet and if it's not, they need to let me know. Um, uh, I also mentioned uh, that sometimes patients will see the waxy coating of the tablet uh, when they have bowel movements. Um, this does not mean the medicine's not working. Um, it can oftentimes just be a waxy coating. Um, and so I simply reassure patients uh, that that is something that can occur and can be normal. And as uh, Dr. Antonelli mentioned in her talk, uh, and as well as Dr. Best, um, this, is, this gets to the importance of repeating 24-hour urine collections uh, when we initiate any therapy, because if I can confirm to a patient in fault that their citrate, for instance, is in fact improved, then they're reassured that the tablet in their, uh, in their stool is, is really inconsequential. There are patients who truly don't absorb it. And so again, it is important to repeat a 24-hour urine. Um, hyperkalemia is relatively rare. Um, uh, I would even say in patients uh, who I take care of who have some element of renal insufficiency. However, I would be cautious in patients who have renal insufficiency. Um, and this is something that should be monitored for. Um, Patients may complain of muscle cramps or weakness. Uh, some patients will complain tingling in the hands. Um, and then through the years, I've heard all sorts of different um, potential side effects. I had a patient who had uh, sleep disruption. I had patients who uh, felt like they were losing their hair and these things have resolved when stopping the medicine. So I think it's just important that, um, to listen to patients and you know, sometimes offering a brief trial off the medicine and seeing if their symptoms resolve. Uh, we'll give you the answer whether it's truly from the potassium citrate or not. Um, sorry, it's a little bit out of order. Um, okay, well, um, I'm not really sure. I apologize. It looks like the slides are a little out of order. So I will. Um, all right, well, this is where we left off. So um, as far as monitoring goes, um, uh, we do check a, a, a basic metabolic panel about one to two weeks after initiation. Again, I will tell you in patients with normal renal function, 
it is pretty uncommon to find hyperkalemia. Uh, however, um, we do as a routine check. Um, the AUA does recommend repeating a 24-hour urine after initiating uh, therapy. Um, we, usually see, we usually see patients back about four to six months and repeat a 24-hour urine prior to that follow-up visit, uh, particularly if the potassium citrate is given for a specific abnormality. If it's being given empirically for recurrent stone formers who have normal 24-hour urines, uh, then it perhaps is not necessary to repeat the 24-hour urine. Um, and in, in obese patients, it's important to point out, uh, they may require more frequent dose adjustments. So we do start them in general on the same dose. Um, however, we found uh, looking back at our own patients that oftentimes these patients um, will require uh, their dosages to be adjusted higher. And I often use the analogy with my patients of blood pressure. So if you go in and have high blood pressure with your primary care provider, and they hand you a blood pressure medicine, uh, they typically want to see you back to recheck your blood pressure to ensure that the blood pressure medicine is effective. They don't just wait to see if you have a stroke or a heart attack. And so I think in, in, in the 24-hour urine, in this sense, is analogous to the repeat blood pressure check to ensure that you've corrected the metabolic abnormality that you were attempting to treat and the stone event would be analogous to the heart attack or stroke. So it really does help to repeat a 24-hour urine to ensure you've actually corrected what you're trying to correct and then adjust the dose and repeat 24-hour urines as needed. So what are some of the indications for uh, potassium citrate? Um, uric acid stones uh, and low urine pH. Um, hypocitraturia, which can be from a number of different causes, the most common of which is idiopathic. However, renal tubular acidosis is something we commonly see in our stone formers. And then as uh, Dr. Best mentioned, thiazide-induced uh, hypokalemia and hypocitraturia uh, can be a common cause of hypocitraturia. Uh, we use potassium citrate idiopathic stone formers. And then though we won't discuss this in depth, cystinurics. So uh, cysteine is uh, much more soluble at high urine pHs. And so one of the first line therapies for uh, stone prevention and cystinuric, in addition to fluid intake, is potassium citrate to raise their urine pH. And then there the goal is to get their pH above seven. So uric acid stones, um, the primary prevention of a uric acid stone is alkalinization of the urine. Um, and this is a really important point of emphasis. Allopurinol does not prevent uric acid stones. In fact, the early studies of allopurinol were actually looking at calcium oxalate stone formers. Uric acid stones are almost invariably formed due to low urine pH. Typically, pH is less than or equal to five and a half. And when you do a 24-hour urine, this is what you'll typically see. Low urine pH is also a risk for calcium oxalate stone formation, but it is the primary risk for uric acid stones. And the treatment should be to increase the urine pH above six. It is almost physiologically impossible to form a uric acid stone as the pH gets much above six. And you can dissolve uric acid stones with an alkalinizing agent such as potassium citrate if you can get the pH above six and a half. And certainly for patients who may have large lower pulse stones that you're fairly confident are uric acid due to stone passage history and due to Hounsfield unit on CT, it is perfectly reasonable if the patient's asymptomatic. 
and has no signs of obstruction to uh, put them on potassium citrate for dissolution. In that case, I would typically start patients on uh, 20 milliequivalents three times a day or 30 milliequivalents twice a day, and then check a 24 urine pH. Um, hypocitraturia, there's really no strict definition of what a normal urine citrate is. Uh, suggested cutoffs are listed here. A lot of this depends on which 24-hour urine vendor you use. Um, I believe Litholink has uh, 450 for males and 550 for females. Uh, the causes of hypocitraturia um, um, are uh, idiopathic is the most common. Um, patients who have chronic diarrheal states or inflammatory bowel disease because they lose bicarb um, with their bowel movements, and this leads to an acidotic state, which consumes citrate, uh, which is a, bu a systemic buffer. Um, diabetes can cause hypocitraturia. Uh, medication, as Dr. Antonelli mentioned in her talk, the most common probably being topiramate or topamax. We see this quite commonly in our practice. Uh, this is often used for migraines. Additionally, Topamax has this awful side effect, which is weight loss. So patients really don't like to come off it. Um, and so in these patients, we often start them on potassium citrate and you can effectively uh, prevent their stones. And it essentially causes a renal tuber acidosis. Um, and then again, thiazide induced hypocitraturia. So renal tuber acidosis, um, this is essentially an inability to secrete hydrogen ions into the urine and a complete renal tubular acidosis, which is not as common, we often see an incomplete RTA, leads to systemic metabolic acidosis, but incomplete, there's no systemic metabolic acidosis. The most common 24-hour urine findings are mildly elevated urinary calcium, markedly reduced urinary citrate, and then high urine pH, typically above six and a half. And on serum tests, sorry, these arrows don't line up, you usually see a hypokalemic, so low potassium, hyperchloremic acidosis. And they typically form calcium phosphate stones. Um, really, the treatment with potassium citrate not only can help prevent their stones, but it helps correct their systemic acidosis. So this leads to increased urinary citrate. It can also correct associated hypercalciuria because the hypercalciuria often comes from uh, loss of calcium from the bones, which is due to the systemic acidosis. Um, in cases where hypercalciuria remains, you can add a thiazide uh, if, if it persists after starting potassium citrate. Um, and it reduces stone formation despite concern for further elevating urinary pH. In my experience, the pH doesn't go much higher um, because typically these pHs are already around 6, 6.9 or 7. And this is just a slide, um, you know, courtesy of Dr. Preminger, my mentor, just showing that um, potassium citrate can reduce stone formation rate despite the underlying metabolic condition. So whether you have chronic diarrhea, renal tubular acidosis, um, hypocitraturia, um, uric acid stones, regardless, if you're put patients on potassium citrate, you can dramatically reduce their stone formation rate. And this was a Cochrane review. Uh, looking at the uh, very few uh, randomized uh, studies compared to placebo or no intervention, um, and they basically favor uh, and show potassium citrate does reduce um, new stone formation. Um, for idiopathic stone formers, um, so this is from the AUA guidelines, uh, potassium citrate should be offered to calcium oxalate stone formers with normal 24-hour urines who continue to make stones 
or if they've had other metabolic abnormalities and they've been appropriately corrected. So for instance, their hypercalciuria or hyperoxaluria is now normalized uh, and they continue to make stones. Um, as far as alternatives, uh, certainly there are dietary alternatives, lemon and other citrate uh, fruits such as orange and lime have been shown to increase urinary citrate. However, there have really been no studies that have confirmed that these decreased stone formation rate I would argue the primary benefit of lemon or lemonade therapy is actually the increased fluid. Um, so if patients like lemon uh, or lemonade, um, it at least encourages them to, um, uh, to increase their fluid intake. Um, sodium bicarbonate is also an alternative. Um, there's a question in the chat about you know, CKD. So for patients with renal insufficiency or who cannot tolerate potassium citrate, uh, you can give them sodium bicarbonate. It does come in tablet form. Uh, you can also prescribe baking soda. Uh, we, I do have a handful of patients who take baking soda or colleagues who prescribe it. Um, if you prescribe the tablets, they're usually 650 milligrams each. So I prescribe two tablets twice a day with meals. Uh, the primary side effect is upset stomach. You do have to be cautious in patients with hypertension um, or hypercalciuria. Um, however, um, there have been, uh, and I believe Chris Pennison looked at this, it doesn't appear that the sodium load from sodium bicarbonate has as much of an effect on hypercalciuria as dietary sodium does. Um, and we certainly have not, uh, in our experience, seen uh, a huge impact in urinary calcium when we prescribe sodium bicarbonate. They should also be careful in patients who have uh, congestive heart failure as well. Um, potassium bicarbonate is also an effective alternative. Uh, for patients who cannot afford potassium citrate or in patients who cannot afford it, um, if it, it comes in a 25 mil equivalent uh, effervescent, um, and so in some patients, they tolerate this better. Um, it, the main side effect, again, is GI upset, and it has the same monitoring as potassium citrate. We check a BMP um, and a repeat 24-hour urine. Um, we have been using a lot of uh, sodium bicarbonate and potassium bicarbonate in our practice. And, and one of our residents uh, looked at this retrospectively to actually see how effective these were. Um, and they compared the citrate and pH response for patients on potassium citrate uh, to those on potassium bicarbonate. And they looked at some cost information as well. Uh, we found that uh, whether it be sodium bicarbonate or potassium bicarbonate, there's a similar uh, citraturic response um, as uh, potassium citrate, both of them significantly increase citrate in the urine for hypocitraturic patients. Um, both the sodium and potassium bicarbonate also had a significant response to the pH uh, and was similar to the response from potassium citrate. Um, and then this is just a, an example of cost, um, you know, on, on GoodRx, which um, is often a good website to find coupons. You could also certainly use other um, uh, coupon-based program uh, uh, platforms, but you can see here um, that the uh, cost for potassium bicarbonate and sodium bicarbonate can be dramatically lower. This is not always the case, and I just, you know, I counsel patients that um, if it's unclear what their insurance will cover, I'll prescribe them potassium citrate, but I do tell them, please don't spend several hundred dollars and to reach out to my office if in fact it is expensive, and then we could work to find an alternative uh, that is less expensive. And often you can uh, in fact find a less expensive alternative. 
Um, so in summary, potassium and sodium bicarbonate uh, have similar citrusuric and pH responses and can have significantly decreased costs uh, depending on a patient's insurance plan. So in conclusion, potassium citrate is indicated for patients with recurrent stones due to hypocitraturia, low urine pH, uric acid stone formers, and also idiopathic stone formers who fail dietary management. Alternative alkali are clinically effective and can be a large cost savings for patients. And with that, uh, I thank you. And I will hand the floor uh, to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Brian Eisner, um, who will talk about uh, dietary prevention of stone disease uh, and uh, particularly focusing on hyperoxaluria as well. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, it's an honor and privilege to be here. I wanna thank, of course, the AUA and their team uh, for uh, the support for this course. I wanna thank all the participants for coming on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, of course, I want to thank my uh, co-panelists for uh, always teaching me something about metabolic stone disease and uh, letting me bat uh, clean up here. So we're going to start with dietary prevention uh, of stone disease and, and dietary treatment of hyperoxaluria. Um, let's see. Oh, and these are just my disclosures. Uh, so I'm going to first talk about medical nutrition therapy. So diet influences formation and growth of urinary stones. We know this. And although my colleagues spend most of the time talking about medications, we're going to kind of shift away from medications a little bit. Diet is one of many factors which can increase or decrease risk of stone formation. And it is a cofactor with all these other uh, aspects, genetics, urologic anatomy, physiology, medications, and comorbidities. And finally, medical nutrition therapy uh, is a very low side effect profile for prevention of stone recurrence. Um, like Sarah, like Jody, like Michael, I tend to use medications for patients in whom it is indicated, but I think it's also important to note that we're often starting with medical nutrition therapy before we prescribe patients medications. So uh, what do patients want? So these are <clears throat> two different studies uh, from sort of the early 2000s. Um, and what's interesting is if you ask the patients what they want, they would much rather change their drinking habits and much rather change their dietary habits than take medications. I think this is probably sort of the converse of what I was saying before. Obviously, medications have a greater side effect profile in most circumstances than dietary changes, uh, although the meds we talked about were, are, are well tolerated. But patients would rather not take drugs if they don't have to. So the way I describe this to my patients, I say, here are my diet recommendations. Here would be medication recommendations. We can start with either if you want to start slowly or you want to start with sort of the least aggressive approach, perhaps we start with diet. What you see here in these studies is that upwards of 95, 97% of patients are willing to, at least in survey data, both increase their diet or change their diet and increase their fluid intake. So this is the Borghi study. Uh, you know, uh, we uh, Borghi's uh, studies were mentioned earlier uh, in the calcium talk, but this is an incredible study, a randomized study of greater than 200 stone formers. One group had a high fluid intake per day, two liters, right? And the uh, and the other group had one liter a day. And of course, what happened, right? Not not surprising. The group that drank two and a half liters a day had 12% 12 stone recurrence in three years. And the group that only drank one liter a day had 27% stone recurrence at a mean time of 25 months. So this is probably not that shocking, but one of the things I tell my patients, they come in with these big printed lists of oxalate and medications. I say, the most important thing you can do is drink a lot of fluid. I'm gonna to get to what kind of fluids in a moment, but drink a lot of fluid. The more fluid you drink, the less stones you make. It sounds simple. But what I tell the patients too, is I say, remember, 
our thirst drive is not set up to prevent stones, right? Our thirst drive is set up to prevent dehydration. So when I'm thirsty, it's because my body's trying to tell me not to get dehydrated. But I think the key for stone formers, especially recurrent stone formers, is to drink when you're not thirsty and really maintain a urine volume between two and three liters, if not higher. When we talk about which beverages to drink, there's also a lot of myth about this on the internet. And so I simplify it into two groups for my patients. What I say is that what I care about is the volume of fluid they drink. I don't care as much about the types of drinks. However, there is one group of drinks that I care about, and that is the sugar-sweetened drinks. So sugar-sweetened cola, sugar-sweetened non-cola, and fruit punch actually is associated with an increased risk of kidney stones. Interestingly, these other drinks, many of them which contain small amount of oxalate, are actually associated with a decreased risk of kidney stones. These include coffee, tea, wine, beer, and orange juice. So a lot of patients say, I was told I can't drink coffee. I was told I can't drink tea. They have oxalate in them. But the epidemiologic studies show, and this is published uh, again by the group at Harvard School of Public Health in 2013, that probably because of the diuretic effect of caffeine, that coffee and tea, although they contain a little bit of oxalate, actually prevent kidney stones in, as opposed to increase the risk. So what I say is, I don't care what you drink, as long as it's not sugar sweetened, I'd stay away from Coca-Cola, I'd stay away from sugar sweetened non-colas and fruit punch. You could drink your coffee, you could drink your tea. I'm focused on the volume of fluid that you drink. When it comes to diet, the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension is a diet that's been associated with improvement in stone risk. Why is that? So this diet is high intake of fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, dairy, and whole grains low intake of sweetened beverages, and low intake of red and processed meats. Remember, diets that are high in fruits and vegetables or alkali and low in meat or acid will in, will in a sense increase citrate excretion into the urine. And this is probably why they decrease stone risk. So again, high fruits and vegetables, low meat and acid, increases citrate excretion into the urine and likely and decreases stone risk. So I tell my patients to consider increasing the ratio of <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> fruits and vegetables in their diet. <coughs> what about animal protein? Well, animal protein is an acid load and it does have a theoretical risk of both increased urine calcium <coughs> and decreased urine citrate. And that has a lot to do with portion size. While the data are equivocal, there certainly are some studies which show an association between increased animal protein consumption and the risk of nephrolithiasis. And again, we think this may be due to increased urine calcium, increased urine oxalate, lower urine citrate associated with the acid load of eating animal protein. Interestingly, uh, Peggy Pearl and uh, you know now Jody Antonelli and Sarah Best's group down at UT Southwestern uh, did show in a previous study that the kind of animal protein doesn't matter. So unlike, so when I say to my patients, it's animal protein, they say, I don't need a lot of red meat, doc. I say, actually for stones, not for heart disease, but for stones, any animal flesh uh, can cause this problem. That includes fish, that includes chicken, that includes red meat. So on the whole, I say, do your best to maximize your fruits and vegetables, do your best to moderate animal protein. And it's interesting, the dietitians say, don't eat anything bigger than a deck of cards. I think that's really, really a small, uh, animal protein portion. So I often say nothing bigger than the palm of your hand. But again, the idea is moderation, not elimination of animal protein for most patients. 
an optimization of the anim, uh, excuse me, fruits and vegetables in the patient's diets. When it comes to sodium, this is something that both Sarah and Jody touched upon. Sodium and calcium are co-transported in the renal proximal tubule. So increased dietary sodium will increase urine sodium and increase urine calcium. There's been several studies that have shown this matters, several studies that shown it hasn't, but we certainly can see in a number of our patients that as their sodium intake increases and their urine sodium excretion increases, so does their urine calcium excretion. So I tend to say moderate sodium intake. I think one of the most important things to teach the patients, especially the ones that may not be that savvy of the, about their diet, is that you can get a lot of sodium in your diet without using salt. So my patients may say to me, well, I didn't use a salt shaker at all yesterday, doc. And I'll say, well, what'd you have for lunch? And they'll say three hot, hot dogs and a large bag of potato chips. And I say, well, the bag of potato chips and the processed meats are probably loaded with salt. So you can get a lot of sodium without using the salt shaker. And again, increased dietary sodium, increases urine sodium excretion, increases urine calcium excretion. So I do tell my patients to really focus on mon moderating their sodium intake in their diet. Oxalate is very interesting. Oxalate is an area of major patient concern. And part of this is because patients can control this part of the diet. There are a group of foods, albeit a small group, that contain a fair amount of oxalate. But what's interesting to know is that urine oxalate is only 30% from the diet, and much of the oxalate in our urine is actually not from the diet at all, but rather from endogenous production from the liver. So what I tend to tell the patients is there's a small amount of, a small number of foods that do have a lot of oxalate, and I ask them to kind of limit these foods. And I think we'll see it here. Interestingly, epidemiologies, uh, epidemiologic studies have shown that dietary oxalate only has a moderate influence on, on stone risk. And again, that's probably because although there are foods that contain oxalate, there aren't a ton of foods that contain huge amounts of oxalate that will drive the needle on stone formation. The foods that I tell my patients to limit are in red here. These are the highest oxalate foods, spinach, beets, rhubarb, almond, and vitamin C. And so what I do is I say, I would highly consider either eliminating these foods from your diet or at least eating them only once per week. Right. In general, we want to avoid high oxalate foods, which are foods with greater than 100 milligrams of oxalate per serving. But one thing to remember is there are many foods that appear on high oxalate lists on the internet that don't have nearly enough oxalate to drive the needle. These include things like strawberries and raspberries. You'd really have to eat cartons and cartons and cartons of those foods to drive urine oxalate. So I really make my avoid list very short. Spinach, beets, rhubarb, almonds, vitamin C. Uh, Wake Forest used to have a very nice um, list of high oxalate foods with the actual oxalate content. And so I used to send patients there. But the point is, it's not that you can't eat any foods that have oxalate. It's that you want to avoid the high oxalate foods and they're listed in red. And what's very interesting is that I find my patients are very, very focused on this, so much so that they're sometimes less focused on things like drinking a lot of fluid, limiting their dietary sodium, limiting their dietary protein. So I say, just eliminate these five or avoid them work on a low salt, moderate animal protein consumption diet, no spinach, no beets, no almonds, or limited spinach, beets, and almonds, limit your vitamin C, and drink two to three liters a day, and that'll really solve it. But I do find in my practice anecdotally, there's a lot of people that are so focused on oxalate, they forget the other very important dietary recommendations that we tend to give our patients. Phytate is interesting. Phytate is common in dietary sources, including cold cereals, bread, and beans. It's not been very thoroughly studied, but there is epidemiologic evidence that demonstrate that phytate is protective against stone disease in women. This means that in large cohorts of women that have been 
followed at Harvard School of Public Health. Gary Kurhan was the lead author on a lot of these papers. It was shown that women that consumed more foods that contained phytate had less of a stone risk. Uh, no one is really, uh, uh, I think, completely understanding what the mechanism of this pathophysiology is, but suffice it to say that phytate does seem to be beneficial in terms of dietary consumption and stone risk. I'm gonna talk about lemon juice and lemonade now. We also saw Michael Lipkin talk about citrate being a potent inhibitor of stone disease and potassium citrate is shown to prevent stone recurrence. Lemon juice and lemonade, homemade lemonade recipes have been shown in retrospective studies to significantly raise urine citrate. In my practice, the way that I advise my patients, I say mix half a cup of lemon juice, concentrate or, or real lemons, it doesn't really matter, with seven and a half cups of water and drink daily. The problem is that you can't get enough citrate from just a lemon wedge. And so you really have to drink half a cup, almost to a cup of lemon juice per day. Some of the patients will complain that burns their throat. Some of the patients will complain it bothers their teeth. So it's not the perfect solution. But for patients that want to increase their urine citrate without taking potassium citrate, drinking lemon juice each day will help them. Vitamin C is metabolized to oxalate and therefore can theoretically increase the risk of calcium oxalate stone formation. It shows uh, moderate in moderately increased uh, for, uh, for stone formation uh, for consumption greater than 1,000 milligrams a day. So what I tell my patients is, if you want to take a multivitamin, fine. If you want to take vitamin C, fine. If you want to take a little extra vitamin C when you have a cold, fine. But please do not habitually take more than 1,000 milligrams a day of vitamin C because that's been shown in epidemiologic studies to increase stone risk. So 500 milligrams, at least based on the data we have, should be okay. Intermittent consumption should be okay, but try to limit it to less than a gram a day of vitamin C consumption. This is the original paper, getting back to uh, lemon juice, uh, written by uh, my mentor, Marshall Stoller and his colleagues. They had 12 patients with hypocitraturia and calcium oxalate stones, and they started with a mean baseline urine citrate of 140 milligrams a day. They used a half a cup of real lemon, which is just a brand of uh, cooking uh, lemon juice concentrate. This happened to be the one they chose, but for no reason, and the study was not sponsored by that, just to be clear. And what they noted was a mean increase of almost 200 milligrams of urine citrate per day, including 11 of 12 patients that had a response. The cost is very cheap. And so again, suffice it to say that certainly with uh, some lemon juice per day, half a cup of lemon concentrate, you may be able to drive urine citrate into a more, a better place uh, for patients with calcium oxalate stones. This is a study where uh, myself and some colleagues looked at the citrate uh, uh, and alkali content of various uh, available sodas. I wanna be very clear, we did not do this so that we could prescribe diet soda consumption for stone prevention. That was not the purpose. It was rather to guide patients who choose to drink diet sodas on the sodas that have some alkali or some citrate in them. And what we found, which makes a lot of sense is that the, the citrus-based sodas, things like uh, Diet Sunkist, Diet 7-Up, tend to have more alkali or more potassium citrate in them than the non-citrus-based sodas, such as colas and whatnot. So again, I wanna be very clear, I am not prescribing diet soda consumption for stone prevention, but if you are a diet soda drinker and you wanna know which diet sodas will perhaps be slightly helpful in terms of their citrate content, I would focus on the citrus-based sodas, Diet 7-Up, Diet Sunkist. You see them here. You can also find it in our publication uh, in the Journal of Urology. Um, and then uh, uh, another sort of topic, and this is something again touched upon earlier, uh, I think by Sarah, was that um, 
you know, uh, previously it was thought of that perhaps calcium dietary calcium restriction would help reduce kidney stone risk due to calcium. Uh, most of the stones made of calcium oxalate, but we know this is not true. This is a randomized controlled trial by Borgi showing that a normal calcium, low sodium, low animal protein diet was associated with fewer recurrences than um, a low calcium diet. So suffice it to say, dietary calcium is important. It actually inhibits stone formation. This is a tough one for the patients to understand, but you eat dietary calcium, it binds oxalate in the gut. It makes the calcium oxalate complex in the gut be evacuated from the body in the stool as opposed to the urine. It lowers urinary calcium, lowers urinary oxalate excretion, and therefore lowers stone risk. And here you see the differences in the curves between a normal calcium, low sodium, low animal protein diet, where the recurrence is here and a low calcium diet up here. So I tell patients, maintain normal calcium, even have some calcium with your meals if you're gonna have a big oxalate load. So if you are gonna eat a spinach salad for lunch, perhaps have some yogurt with it so that that calcium can bind that oxalate load at lunchtime. And again, that means the calcium oxalate will leave the body in your stool as opposed to in your urine. Other facts, I talked about vitamin C before, greater than one gram a day may lead to epidemiologic issues. Um, Diets high in meat and animal protein may increase urine oxalate levels. Uh, dietary magnesium, maybe through the effects of magnesium binding oxalate in the gut, similar to calcium, may also decrease urine oxalate. And some other, um, some other uh, uh, sort of substances, including vitamin B6 and probiotics, have been hypothesized uh, to prevent stone disease, but really no randomized control trials there to show benefit. Um, so thank you very much. I know that's a bit of a whirlwind. I also know that you guys, uh, you men and women in the audience have been listening to this uh, now for several hours. So I'm grateful for your attention. Again, grateful for my colleagues as well as the AUA for really um, putting on what a wonderful experience here. And uh, we're certainly happy to take any questions, but thank you so much for the opportunity and for your participation. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Brian and Jody and, and Sarah. Um, I think, um, uh, I think we'll uh, maybe answer some of the questions that came through in, in, in sort of more depth since we have um, some time. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> I thought one really interesting question that came up in the chat was what would, what would be your sort of first go-to empiric medication for recurrent calcium stones? So patients who otherwise have a normal 24-hour urine uh, and continue to form stones, would you, would you start them on a thiazide? Would you start them on potassium citrate? Would you start them on both? Um, let's start with Jody, and then we'll go around the horn. Um, so I, I, would, I would first um, be sure that their, their urine pH is not six and a half or higher. Um, you know, if, if at least on, if you had any old ones to look at at all, um, I mean, that's the one group I think you would not want to put on potassium citrate. But I think if, if, if I had any indication that that was not the case, I think I would start with potassium citrate first. For one, you know, when I give a thiazide, I actually tend to give it with potassium citrate or some sort of potassium supplement. Um, so at least I'd be starting with one medication, see what, what happens empirically with that. And then, you know, potentially add the thiazide later if I needed to, but I think it's really important. You don't want to drive somebody's urine pH too high. So if you have any, any idea that that could be the case, you would not want to put that person on potassium citrate. Dr. Eisner. Yeah. So I appreciated that the AUA guidelines panel in the recent, um, 
in their recent publication now, I think almost five years ago, actually put this as one of their topics, right? They said, for patients with normal 24-hour urines, you may consider using thiazide and or potassium citrate, which makes a lot of sense, right? There's definitely these head scratcher patients where they make stone after stone after stone and their 24-hour urine is normal, right? And probably that's because stone formation is multifactorial and some of the promoters and inhibitors are not measured on our 24-hour urines. So that said, when those patients are looking for meds, I tend to start with potassium citrate. I don't think there's a right answer here. The reason I start with potassium citrate, assuming the patients have normal renal function, is that it has less side effect. It has less interaction with other medications, right? And especially, let's say, in young women of childbearing age, it also is safe in pregnancy or, you know, so, so we believe. So, you know, there's no evidence that one of those versus the other will, re will result in greater stone prevention for the patient with a normal 24-hour urine. So I choose potassium citrate in patients with normal renal function because of the lower side effect profile than, than thiazide, sort of as Jody had alluded to. Uh, for someone who had perhaps couldn't tolerate any more potassium or for some reason didn't like potassium citrate pills, I would have no problem giving them empiric thiazide, but I like to start with potassium citrate. Um, there's a there's a question in the chat that just came in that is teed up for Sarah Best, um, just because I know who you work with. Uh, do you look at magnesium routinely on your 24-hour urine panel, uh, and how do you manage it? Yes, great question. So uh, what uh, Mike is alluding to is that I am lucky enough to uh, work at the University of Wisconsin with Chris Penniston, who is a PhD dietitian and like the world's expert on diet and stone disease. She's amazing. So I continue to learn, learn so much from her, uh, but she's the one who has really keyed me onto the magnesium issue. And she's looked into this as well. Uh, but what the issue with magnesium is, is a couple fold. So magnesium, just like calcium is a cation, right? So positively charged. So it can bind with oxalate in the uh, gut lumen. So it can help reduce the absorption of oxalate. So if it was too low, it may result in hyperoxaluria for one thing. Uh, but also it probably is associated with hypocitraturia. So it is not uncommon if you see somebody with a very low urine magnesium for them to have a low citrate in their urine as well. Now that could be, it has some to do with the whole acid base issues, but also has to do with the folks who tend to have a low magnesium may often be folks with fast GI transit, to, you know, bad Crohn's disease, big bowel resections, things like that, who also are at risk for uh, acid, metabolic acidosis and low urine citrate. Um, but the point being that it can often, you can prescribe the heck out of potassium citrate to people. Um, and if you do not replete their magnesium, it often will not really budge. And so they may be taking a ton of pill uh, potassium, but not having much effect. So I think it is important to address the profoundly low, especially magnesium. So less than 60 uh, is where you're typically looking and you can prescribe magnesium oxide, really any formulation of you know, drugstore or grocery store magnesium uh, supplement over the counter will work. Um, and I usually would give it at mealtime, same as you would if you're going to prescribe calcium for somebody with hyperoxaluria. 
Uh, but that I think can really help the other approaches of using uh, medications to increase citrate to be more effective. Sarah, one thing that I've had heard about concern with prescribing magnesium is that it'll cause diarrhea. Have you seen that with patients? Um, I think it can be tricky to tell. So usually not, they don't usually need to take enough as a huge issue in sort of your guts. Usually if you take it on a daily basis, your guts kind of adjust to it. But I think some of the issue can be that the patients who you might be most prone to using it uh, in our patients who have fast GI tra transit as it is. So patients with poorly managed inflammatory bowel disease, things like that, who are having a lot of loose stools as well. So I think, you know, it is a balancing act. You don't want to have, you know, have people be dehydrated and worsen their stone disease that way. But in general, it's something that people's guts tend to get used to, especially if they take it with food. Thank you, Sarah. Um, there was a, a couple of questions about carbonate appetite stones and, and managing them medically. And so often these stones can be associated with infection. So I, I'd ask the group, um, for, for patients whom you uh, can't get stone free, who in general have infection stones, what are some of your medical strategies to try to reduce either the stone recurrence or the recurrence of symptomatic infections? Um, and I'll start again with Jody. I think for reduction of, um, you know, in, infection stones, I mean, for sure, my number one goal is to attempt to get them stone free. Um, you know, if, if that means, um, you know, doing a PCNL where you can get in there with suction and actually, you know, evacuate some of the stuff, but for sure, that's my number one uh, goal in treatment. And then, um, you know, uh, trying to do everything I can to reduce their, their um, likelihood of, an, of another infection. I mean, for some of these patients, it's just so difficult. They have, you know, chronic indwelling SP tubes or um, you know, other, other risk factors, diabetes, sedentary lifestyle, things like that, that, um, you know, they're just prone to these things. I think aggressive hydration, um, you know, to try to, um, maximize like anything you can do to, um, improve, uh, you know, bladder emptying, um, things along those lines. Uh, you know, I have at points in my career given um, like a three month course of a suppressive antibiotic. I've, I've kind of lately gone away from that just because of like all the antibiotic stewardship concerns. Um, but I think that's another thing that could be done. I mean, I think if, if you do it, you know, I would do it once the person is cleared out and, you know, do it for a short course, maybe a month or two um, to avoid it, you know, some of the negative effects with resistance. Do any of the panel members have experience with trying to acidify the urine? I know there was a talk yesterday at the Rock Society. They mentioned, um, I think, trying to get vitamin C to acidify the urine. Um, I, I, I have not um, uh, tried to do, do that, but I don't know if any of you all have tried to do that. No, I mean, I will say, I think the most challenging patients to manage medically are RTA patients. I mean, those patients, you know, have high urine pH and low citrate and, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive, but your treatment for those patients is potassium citrate in the hopes that it raises citrate and you get the benefit of that more than the negative impact of potentially raising their pH a bit more. But I find inevitably, you know, you put them on potassium citrate, their pH goes even higher and their citrate barely budges, but I have not had any success with other things to lower urine pH. You know, Mike, actually, I might ask you to comment. You know, I, I think when I trained in early in my career, 
we thought that some of the medications for struvite stones, I think you're talking about, had a very high risk profile in terms of thromboembolic events, which is why a lot of people have stayed away from them. But recently you told me about, you know, a, a highlighted a paper that you guys published where you've had nice success using that medication. I think the, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind to comment on that, because I do think the, panel, the uh, audience would really appreciate that, as would I. Yeah, I mean, um, lithostat, which has been around forever, um, is, uh, is a medication. It's a urease inhibitor um, that um, uh, uh, we use on occasion in, patient, in some of these sort of medically comorbid patients who you just can't uh, take to the OR. Um, or for anatomic reasons, you just can't get them completely stone free. And certainly uh, Glenn Preminger, who I've had the privilege of training with and uh, working with uh, for a long time, uh, uses this frequently. In our experience, we've not seen a tremendous number of thromboembolic uh, events. In fact, I don't recall, quite frankly, any clinical events. Um, we do monitor these patients. We get, um, you also, they also can get, um, uh, I think a thrombocytopenia as well. So you do have to check uh, you know, CBCs routinely um, on these patients. We usually see these, these are patients we usually see in our practice quite frequently. You'll get um, some blood work um, almost every three months, three to six months, if they're stable and, uh, and imaging. Um, so we, and we've had uh, patients where we've been able to keep their stone burn stable, um, but um, it's, it's really the exception rather than the rule, as, as, as Jody mentioned, your goal really is to get them stone free, um, though admittedly, uh, sometimes it's easier said than done. Um, uh, and so in, in some patients, if you're able to closely monitor them, uh, lithostat is a, is a viable option. And I know probably somebody's gonna ask the dosage and I, I don't remember off the top of my head, I believe it's about 150 milligrams twice a day. Um, uh, but if somebody's really curious, they could email me and I could find out. <laughs> I just don't remember. You know, I've often wondered if, you know, for patients who are chronically colonized with a type of, you know, with bacteria because they have an indwelling catheter or some sort of diversion that gets colonized, things like that, you know, how with there's been fecal transplants for, you know, patients with, you know, severe C. diff and things like that, where you're trying to introduce a new bacterial flora. There's a lot of interest in the microbiome of the gut and that sort of thing. I've often wondered if someday we're going to see that for the urinary tract, where we get a non-urea splitting bacteria that hopefully is not, you know, making people really ill, but uh, kind of lives in there in harmony, but manages to fight off the other bacteria uh, that want to raise that urine pH up. So I've wondered if that will be a thing someday um, to help these really tricky to manage patients with chronic bacteria. Yeah, it's possible. And actually along those lines, I'll ask, um, I, you know, it, it, in the, uh, it's not quite ready for prime time realm. If you um, all would like to comment on some of the newer things that may be coming down the pipes to help with some of our stone patients, um, particularly some treatments for enteric hyperoxaluria, um, and then some treatments for primary hyperoxaluria. Um, you know, Dr. Eisner, maybe you can comment a little bit um, on some of the uh, uh, medications that are now in trial and may soon in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months, hopefully, um, be available for our patients. 
Yeah, I, I guess I would just say, and I do have to fully disclose um, that I am a uh, consultant for Alina Pharmaceuticals, uh, which is uh, developing one of these medications. But regardless, I think we can say that you know, if we think about the 24-hour urines that my colleague spoke so eloquently about, you know, the one thing we don't really have great level one evidence or a way to attack is urine oxalate, right? We can attack urine calcium. We can attack urine citrate for the calcium oxalate stone former. We can attack urine uric acid. And even in patients that have calcium oxalate stones that have high urine oxalate, I still end up attacking those other things because there's not much we can do. So there are definitely um, medications in the pipeline. Um, <clears throat> some of them are, you know, things like uh, medications that, were, that are designed to bind oxalate in the gut, to degrade oxalate in the gut, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Alina is making one of them and, and their, their, their trials are, are published and, and, uh, and, and disclosed. But I, I do think that this is a target. You know, if we look at kind of the, the papers we all presented, right, there's not a lot of modern data on a new drug for stone prevention. And so uh, I do think that several uh, startups are looking to target oxalate and see if we can drive the needle uh, on, on urinary oxalate, especially for patients who have a normal calcium, have a normal citrate, have a normal urinary acid, have high urine oxalate, and it's not because of dietary indiscretion. And so um, there are definitely medications and recombinant enzymes coming down the pike for those. How well they'll work, I don't know yet, but certainly that's, I think, the in the innovation space, one of the hot topics right now. And I'll, I'll just add uh, two things. One, they're also um, now commercially available uh, RNA uh, RNA drugs uh, targeting primary hyperoxaluria, um, and there are companies, um, uh, Alnylam, and, and I think Discern is the other that they'll do. Um, uh, they'll do genetic panels. So if you have patients with really high urine oxalates, we're talking, you know, in the 80s and above, um, they may actually have a form of primary hyperoxaluria, and, and there are now medicines that are commercially available um, to that can help treat that. Um, I also would also add there's a lot of um, evidence now that um, elevated urinary oxalate may um, add to the progression of chronic kidney disease. Um, and if you read the nephrology literature, the levels of oxalate in the urine uh, that they uh, are looking at are, are much lower than uh, the levels of oxalate in the urine that we uh, look at. So there's a, a lot of interest in this space and hopefully um, there'll be some new treatments uh, to help us prevent stones in our patients. Jody, do you want to add something? No, I was, I was going to mention about the, uh, the genetic testing. I mean, um, you know, we've had folks from both of those groups um, come to our clinic and it's, it's, you know, it's very easy to do and it's free of charge to the patients and you get, um, you know, results back pretty quickly. I, I mean, I do think that um, it's, it, it's something that has not been diagnosed probably as much as it does exist. And, and, and especially in potentially these different forms of um, primary hyperoxaluria. So uh, I definitely think that's, that's something that is going to probably become more and more available. So yeah, I, actually, oh, I'm go sorry. ahead, Sarah. No, go ahead, Sarah. I was just going to, you know, we were talking, it's a bit of a transition question, but, you know, regarding, uh, um, you know, does somebody have dietary indiscretions, which I just love the sound of because it makes uh, eating sound so scandalous. Um, but uh, it, how are you guys in your practices um, functionally assessing patients' diets? So we've talked a lot about, you know, identifying that somebody's urine sodium is high or, 
you know, the issues of Oxlade or uh, being from uh, where I'm from, uh, for Oxlade, a big thing for us is uh, in Wisconsin is that we consider it maybe more paucity of calcium in the diet for patients who have hyperosteuria, things like that. So how, how do you guys um, assess diet in your practices? I'm lucky because like I said, I work with the, um, the world's expert and can send patients to her, but functionally, how do you assess? And I'll, I'll take this first. You know, I, I think one of the challenges is um, uh, diet, dietitians aren't always covered uh, by insurance. And, and many dietitians are not familiar with actually stone prevention diets. Um, and so for me, uh, and, you know, one of the challenges as a urologist is, you know, you only have so much time to sit with each patient in a busy clinic. So I actually often um, do my dietary prevention and dietary history like simultaneously. So I will start by saying, you know, we're going to go over and I try to also keep it simple when I counsel prevention, I, I really talk about fluids, salt, and then making sure they eat calcium. Um, and in that I'll tease out like, you know, we want you to drink, you know, two, two and a half, uh, sorry, two to three liters a day. You know, what fluids are you drinking? These are fluids that are better or worse. Do you drink a lot of cola? Um, in the salt, that's where I'll start to ask like, oh, you don't add salt, but do you, you know, processed foods, et cetera, et cetera. Um, same thing with calcium, you know, calcium is primarily dairy. Do you have other calcium sources? That's when I'll find out they, you know, drink a half a gallon of almond milk every day. And I tell them, well, that may be something you need to work on. Um, and so for me, uh, from an efficiency standpoint, I found that I can combine the two. Uh, admittedly, it's probably not as thorough as it, as it needs to be, but um, it's really hard to take the time to do a really thorough um, I also think it's really important to ask people whether they're vegan because that vegans are very difficult to manage diet because there's almost no uh, dietary calcium available to them that is not also very high in oxalate. Um, and so uh, that's a question I actually often I'll, I'll often just ask, like, you know, but that's, that's sort of how I approach it. And I think I take a similar approach that Mike takes. I mean, we unfortunately don't have a dedicated dietitian either. And so, you know, again, there's time constraints and I, I try to kind of in going through their 24 hour urine and, and, you know, at each point I sort of ask, um, you know, what they're eating or what they're doing. The other place that I think is really important to look at is supplements and like non-prescription medications. Cause you know, sometimes people take like five tums a night or, you know, again, lately I've just seen people on really high doses of vitamin C. And so trying to look at the those areas as well. And then I think just giving advice to people that they're actually going to retain and use, you know, your group has published on like less is more. I mean, you can't just throw a, a verbal list of 10 things at someone. I think, you know, keeping it to two or three, giving it to them in writing, you know, giving them as much to take home and look at later. Um, you know, you, you all have shown as probably as the highest chance to actually be incorporated uh, into their life. The other group, in addition to vegans that I think is very difficult is people with high oxalate and, and diet and diabetes. Um, because, you know, a lot of what diabetics are told to eat uh, is particularly like nuts, uh, you know, are, and some vegetables are, are very high in oxalate. So that's a challenging group. Um, I find to, to manage in terms of diet advice. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate um, the, the, the engaging conversation. I, like uh, every year, it's, uh, I learn a lot from all of you. Um, you guys are really great, and I, I really appreciate that. Uh, uh, thank you all uh, very much. Oops.
for um, for joining us uh, for urolithiasis metabolic evaluation and medical management presented by the AUA. Um, I'd like to thank my uh, colleagues who um, uh, took the time out to put together the material and teach. And I really want to give a special shout out to the entire AUA team uh, behind the scenes, uh, Aaron, Barbara, Sarah, um, everybody. If I forgot anybody, I apologize. Um, uh, um, Katie, um, the whole team, you guys uh, have really been great and have made this uh, really pretty easy for us. And I hope all the participants really enjoyed the talk um, and don't hesitate to reach out with any questions.